Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Mezcal Collective at Las Perlas, we had Mr. Ben Scott in the house representing Mezcal Malbien and La La Cura. This was an incredible night of Mezcal enjoyment. We hope to better educate people about this precious and magical spirit of Oaxaca. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Please tell your friends and remember, Cats are not supposed to drink mezcal. And nobody really has the answers. And so if you're coming into the world of mezcal with the same uh, approach that you might bring to wine or whiskey or brandy or whatever, uh, it's super frustrating, super impossible. Uh, But if you are willing to spend the time and be patient, uh, it's so much more so much more rewarding to me at least just because the book is already written on those things there's nothing new to discover there's nothing new to learn and uh and there's still room for us to have an opinion and figure out who's right or study and 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 you know prove that one way or the other beautiful stuff do you guys are you guys here for la lacuro is that is that the one you guys know yeah because it's kind of the, the better known brand this one's pretty well known in mexico right yeah uh lalo was the uh master distiller of real monero for like 10 years so he's the oldest son of that family uh, a lot of people know him from that if you're in mexico and then uh he started his own thing in 2013 uh, so 2014 was the first batch of releases, and little by little, uh, he's just built this crazy cult following where if you spend any time bumming around Mexico, you will end up at Lalo's house sometime, and you'll, and you'll end up being drunk. I want to end up at Lalo's house. That yeah. sounds awesome. The, the Real Monero stuff, a lot of that stuff was coming out of clay pot stills, yeah? Exactly, exactly. So this so is, is made still uh, carrying on identical, the same wow. identical process, identical... Uh, set of plants, everything the same. I mean, the same as he was making it when he was there, he's making it the same way now. Which is the ancestral method, which there's... We don't really know how long people have been making spirits with clay pot stills. They didn't need conquistadors to show them how to make a clay pot still. Clay pot stills have been around. There's evidence in what we now call Pakistan of clay pot stills that go back 5,000 years. So it's quite possible that the indigenous people have been making spirits in Mexico for... A conservative very, very estimate would be like 500 years or way, way more. Way, I'm voting for way, way more. Let's go with that. Right on. So when you, Lalo, now he's, he's started to capture a lot of people's interest in his mezcal. Yes. How is he keeping up with demand? Because what we know about the mezcal world is that all these brands are popping up, but some of them are, it's so hard to make. And the, sure. the, the reality of it is that the sustainability issue is huge. So how is he able to sustain his business, and, and what's the yield that he's putting out at this point? Uh, it's a couple things. So he, he's a very savvy guy. He, uh, he grew up making mezcal for his father and then went to college. He's got a degree in engineering. Uh, he built his own house in three months. He's like a, he's just a, he's like a Mexican MacGyver. Um, but uh, in addition that to being, he's Irish Mexican, um, he's definitely he drinks like he's an Irish Mexican. Um, the 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 level of planning and thought that he puts into it, I think, is uh, certainly a step above and beyond anything I've encountered with other mescaleros. Uh, he's super conscious of not just the uh, economic longevity of his palenque of the uh, environmental sustainability of what he's doing, 
but also of the uh, the cultural sustainability of what he's doing. So he's a guy that's planning, uh, you know, a hundred years into the future for long after he's gone. It's not just about uh, making sure that they're planting enough seeds today so that in 10 years they can continue to grow at the rate that they're growing now. Uh, it's about making sure that people who are in jobs that have nothing to do with what he does can continue to uh, work and thrive and stay in that community. One of the biggest things you find in rural Mexico is people leaving either to move to a city, to move to another country, whatever it is. Uh, it's just not viable to stay in rural Mexico and live as a farmer. Um, and he was actually the mayor of his town for four years at one point uh, wow. in like 2012. Um, and if you ask him, the thing that he's proudest of was uh, building a dam in the town, raising the water level, not because that that helped him at all. Uh, you know, agave needs some amount of rainwater, but it's not like the 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 thirstiest of crops. Um, Definitely not. But uh, since they completed the dam, nobody in the town has moved out of town. And that's like a very cool metric for success. Um, for sure. And I think, you know, as that relates to Mezcal, if the only people who are left in town are the people that couldn't get out, that's not how you end up with the best and brightest. And certainly if what you care about is uh, that this product continues to be, and product is a, is a, the wrong word. Yeah, that's, that's how we would talk because I'm like a disgusting businessman. Yeah. No, this um, is this is medicine. This is something yeah. that's the spirit of the people. This is something that goes back for generations upon generations. Exactly. And it, 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 it's, it encompasses a certain spiritual aspect of people's lives. Salud. Salud. Cheers to you guys. Stichu Bayou. Stichu Bayou. So be very careful. Respect this spirit. Sip it very slowly. And, and, and talk about what you're experiencing. What do you smell? Oh, what is this? We didn't even, we, I don't even know what I'm drinking. I just, Stephanie brought it to me. I'm like, yes, I will drink whatever you brought me. So what is this for spirit? Uh, so here we've got the, uh, you got the bottle there? Yeah. Tobaziche Esperin. 50-50 by weight. Um, uh, so if you're familiar with any kind of mezcal, you've certainly had Esperin. Uh, that is not to say that it is like... Uh, any less than any other varietal. It's just most heavily planted because it grows really quickly and it has a lot of sugar. Um, if you're going to do everything by hand in the hardest way possible, it would be nice if you get a good yield at the end of all of your hard work. And so a plant like Espadine, not only will you get uh, more yield per hectare or acre, however you want to measure the land, um, but at the end of cooking it, mashing it, fermenting it, all that, um, you're going to get way more liters of product than you would, again, I'm just a... So the Espadine is the ancestral mother of the Blue Weber agave. So people don't really understand. A lot of people are like, so you work at a tequila bar? I'm like, no, you know, it's a mezcal bar. All tequilas are mezcals. Not all mezcals are tequilas. You know, that's the thing that a we're square slowly... square is a rectangle. Yeah. yeah exactly. We're slowly getting that, that word out there. But the Espadine... In terms of the genus, is is the ancestral mother of the Blue Weber agaves, which is what you everybody makes tequila out of. Exactly. But then the Tobasiche is a totally different looking, totally different beast. Plant. Uh, Will you describe what the Tobasiche plant Tobasiche, looks like? Uh, when you look at them, they you you might not know if you weren't informed uh, that it was at all the same plant. It's uh, tall, skinny. The piña itself almost looks like a pine cone. Um, and so Tobaziche, there are, there are a couple different kinds of Karwinskis. You have barils, which like a barrel or fatter. 
Um, and then you have tobaziches, uh, which are much skinnier. That's something you could pick up with two hands and just kind of swing like a bat. Um, but uh, it, it almost looks like a pine tree or something, would you say? And the reason I, I even bring this up is that when we talk about something, a spirit like rum or a spirit like whiskey, a lot of the identity of that spirit comes from the barrel, okay? And how much time is it in the barrel? But when we talk about mezcal, you're talking about the age of the plant, all these unique varietals that are spending their entire lives in the high mountains of Oaxaca or the lowlands of Oaxaca without anyone really watering them or taking care of them. They're surviving out in the desert on their own, and then we harvest them after sometimes six or seven years. A lot of times these tobaciches and things like that require 15, 13 18, to 15 18, years. 30, yeah, Some varietals require 20 to 25 years to come to full maturity. That means really where you're getting the character of the mezcal is from the age of the plant itself. So to me, when I look at that and I taste all these different mezcals, I like to know what they look like because sometimes you get like a, a real straw-like or a very mineral taste from a certain agave and you can kind of look at it and be like, well, this one has a long stalk. And so it makes sense that it, it's kind of got a more fibrous taste to it in yeah. a way. So you start to try to decipher the way the different agaves taste by looking by how they look essentially and how, how big they were, whether they were harvested at full maturity. All those things have a great deal of bearing on the final flavor of the mezcal itself. So this is 50% Tobasiche, that crazy looking Karwinski. Yes. And then 50% of the Espadine. Do you know uh, when he makes a batch, how many bottles is he getting out of a batch? Uh, it just depends on the, it just depends on the time of year. It depends on the cook. Um, he has an oven that'll cook uh, 10 tons of agave, and then obviously, depending on what kind of agave is in there, you're getting uh, a different amount of yield. Um, and then also, one of the big things with him is uh, he will separate things by the rainy season and the dry season. And again, if you're doing something that's a ton of work, uh, you're going to try to, if not cut corners, at least maximize what you're getting out of your hard work. Um, and because if a, an agave is cooked and mashed in the rainy season, you're still dealing with something that's maybe 20% fatter than it would have been uh, in the dry season. But uh, that water that you're throwing in there, you can't ferment water. That doesn't get you anything. It just gets you uh, more stuff to carry around, more stuff to have to mash. Um, and so most people will not make things during the rainy season. He does both, uh, and to his palate, and I would have to agree with him, um, the flavors in the rainy season end up being a lot more cohesive. Interesting. Yeah. So he's not blending different seasons? He doesn't, like, keep some of his uh, wet season stuff around and then blend it with the dry season stuff? Traditionally, no. He doesn't do that. Uh, there are times uh, when you're dealing with certified mezcal where it just doesn't pay to uh, certify 10 different batches. You're going to certify one batch because, you know, you might not be selling it for a year, and so you're going to pay once instead of 10 times. Uh, and that will get vatted. And it's not necessarily that you're doing what you might do with like a small batch whiskey where there's a better barrel and a worse barrel and you're getting kind of the average in terms of quality, but uh, you are losing some of the distinctions between this is what February tastes like, this is what interesting. March tastes like. Yeah, I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. But then when you rest it, though, it does, sometimes in mezcals, it helps to rest them, just kind of like let them kind of oxidize like in the you know, stainless steel glass. Yeah. Um, mezcal and... Really, all spirits, although in most spirits that are sitting in wood, it gets covered up. If you're talking about gin, you've got botanicals that are covering it up. If you're talking about vodka, it sucks anyway. Uh, but 
if if you're dealing with something that's just sort of raw, naked, not getting uh, any of its flavors or aromas for another material, um, you will see the most evolution. Like Pisco has to sit in glass for a couple months at least. Um, and mezcal, absolutely. If you just think of the process of distillation, uh, you're taking something that was a liquid and turning it into a gas and then it's liquid again. Um, those chemicals on a molecular level have so much going on, they're spinning so fast, uh, and it's going to take them quite a while before they reach stasis. Um, right. So yeah. you're breaking apart all these molecules and you kind of want to get them to like fit back together yeah, again. Yeah, you don't want to, you know... Nobody looks their best after running a marathon, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So what do you guys think of this first expression here, the Espadin Tobesiche? What, what flavor words are you getting here? Is it... Say again? Minerality. Okay. Is it, is it wet stone? That's beautiful. Or petrichor. Is there any fruitiness? I get kind of a little bit of banana on yeah. the nose. A, little a bit lot of, of his stuff is uh, a little banana-y, plantain-y. Um, you know, one of the cool things with every mezcal, no matter where it's coming from, uh, if it's made traditionally, you're working with just whatever native yeast are around in the palenque. They're not oh, wow. uh, inoculating it the way that you would with oh, wow. basically every beer, every... Uh, That's really great. I'm getting a big citrus hit, too. There's like this lime. I get a liminess on the... And the there is that great minerality, and there's, a, there's like this cool, like, earthiness. You get this, like dark earth right in the middle of the palate mm -hmm. but then i'm getting like this cool like lime on the finish yeah it's, it's all over my tongue now it's, cool uh, citrus. it's it's an interesting thing to see uh everything that he does is coming from plants that are grown uh within basically a mile and a half of where he's producing it um and so you're looking at very similar soil content obviously very similar weather all these things uh and it's just different different interpretations based on what species of plant you're looking at. Um, wow. That's, that's kind of the, the main variable. Um, so, but how many liters is he getting per batch? These, or when, you, when you guys do your releases, so you wait? Yeah. So you don't have to register every single smaller batch? You kind so of wait? one cook might be uh, between 200 and 300 liters. Wow. Uh, and then one, one certified batch might be closer to like 800. Wow. So those are, I mean, to put that in perspective, you guys, we've got hundreds of liters just on the wall in this bar. Yeah. So we could easily stock in this bar some of these entire batch releases. You know, it's, that's how rare and special Mezcal is. And the work that goes into it, it might take three to four weeks to make a batch, sometimes more if you, you know, uh, I'm not even talking about how much yes. time this stuff is aging, but like... Like from fermentation, how long is your fermentation? They're going to cook for somewhere between like five to seven days. Wow. So before you even get to the cook, you've got a couple days or weeks of harvesting these plants and bringing yeah. them back to the palenque and all that. Uh, but like five to seven days underground, buried, just roasting. Uh, so that's again, three weeks we're at right there. Three weeks yeah. of work so far. Don't have any juice yet. Nothing. Then you've got about uh, anywhere between five and ten days fermenting. Uh, in the tanks. So now we're over a month, still no juice. Then we're... One of the other really crazy things about what he's doing... So to, to put this in context, um, he's distilling in 50-liter clay pot stills. So he has... Uh, he's got five of these stills, uh, 50 liters a piece. Obviously, you can't make an enormous clay pot because you're going to break it. Uh, in the same way that... I mean, what do you think the smallest still in Scotland is? The smallest still in Scotland? 
800 liter? Oh, there, there's some boutique stuff happening now. But yeah, it, it'd be about 500 liters is probably the smallest yeah. still that anyone's going to work with. And they're going to probably be using a column still and use that smaller still as kind of like flavoring whiskey to, right. to blend with something. Very rarely are you going to mess around with the still that small. So it's just not if you're thinking of economical. 500 liters as the smallest still that you might get scotch from. Uh, this is 10 times smaller than that, which means you've got to load the pot, unload the pot, clean the pot 10 times to get the same thing without even considering the fact that obviously uh, clay is a porous material and you're losing all sorts of uh, evaporation during this process. So again, it's just one more way that you're doing it the hard way, you're doing it the slow way, and, and you're getting less to show for and it. And clay pots break all the time. All the time. And they usually break when you're using them. Yes. So you've got all of your products, all of your beautiful mezcal cooking away in your clay pot still, and it cracks, and you're like, oh shit. And then a few minutes later, it breaks. I have, uh, I actually have a bottle of espadine that he was like, oh, I'll let you try this, but it's terrible. The still, uh, the pot cracked while they were cooking. So not just the smoke from when they were roasting the agave, but the smoke from the wood fire that they were using to heat the pot. There was a little crack, and the smoke was getting into uh, the ferment. And it, to me, it tastes like, like smoked mozzarella cheese. And like maybe that's like, like the New Yorker in me coming out. Like That's my frame of reference. Uh, but I was like, this is really, this is really cool. And he's like, ah, oh, you don't want that. I'm like, well, let me have a couple liters. And he's like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'll sell them to you. And I'm like, well, I thought it was garbage a minute ago. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was a hundred dollars a bottle. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, right yeah. on. So do you guys like this first expression? Okay. Now Stephanie just came around with this second one. Stephanie, what's the second one here, love? Numero dos. Oh, this is all Tobaziche. All Tobaziche, yeah. So wow. uh, in this first lot that we imported, uh, we have a Tobaziche on its own. We have an Aspidine on its own from him. And we have a Tobaziche Aspidine, which you might imagine is sort of the midpoint between the two in terms of flavor and style. Uh, but to my palate, very much its own thing. Well, that's the interesting thing. It's just in the world of spirits, because... You're breaking apart these miracles and putting them back together. It, it doesn't end up being like A plus B equals C. In fact, what happens a lot as things rest is that A plus B turns into F or G yeah. or Z or something. There's a, like a weird confluence of influences that come together and yeah. create a new flavor that wasn't in either of the source. That first one mezcals. you would want to do like a paternity test on. That would be like a, like a Mori Povich mezcal where you'd be like, I don't think that that's... That's, that's not, not halfway between the Aspidine and the... And the that's Tobacco. interesting. So this is pure Tobacco guys. So stick your nose in that glass, breathe in gently through your mouth, and tell me about your experience. George, what are you getting as you smell the second one? Whetstone. Whetstone. to the Petrichor, again, that wet earth. Right? A lot of bananas on the second one. Right on. Bambino, what are you getting? Did you taste it? You're just going for a walk. Cactus. Cactus. Nopales. 
Overturned Earth. That's what I was kind of getting off the like first that. one. Yeah. So that goes back. Do you guys have, is your oven in the earth? Is it a big conical pit in the exactly. earth? Exactly. Uh, it is just a like a, if you think of those paper water cups from like a, a water cooler. We've got and, one right over there. Yeah. Oh, if you're is, thirsty, we have like water a real, in it. It's like a real office. This yes. is great. Yeah. No, it's like we're emulating the mezcal <laughs> with our water cups. Uh, yeah, like that or, or you think of uh, like snow cone cups, whatever your frame of reference is. That kind of shape dug into the ground. Raspados. Exactly. Throw a bunch of hardwood in there. Some people use oak. Some people use pine. Some people use a mixture. Uh, again, just one of the ways that, depending on the town you're in, it's really going to influence the, the character of the finished mezcal. Um, cover that with some rocks so that you don't burn the agave too much. Throw some agave on there once it's uh, cooled down to embers, kind of barbecue style. Cover that with the tarp. Bury it in dirt. Leave it for a week. But you're saying his pit's pretty big. If, if he can put 10 tons of piñas on that fire, yeah. that's a pretty big pit. It's pretty big. How, uh, many, how many guys does he have working if it's that big of, a, of an operation? He has, uh, you know, it depends on the day. Overall, on his payroll, he's got something like 12 guys, which wow. is pretty crazy. Like, a lot of the guys that's that we uh, work with, it's a father and a son, and that's it. Father and a son, two donkeys. Um, and so for Lalo to have this team of dudes, uh, part of it, again, is beyond just the necessity for, for turning out Mezcal. He likes the idea that he's training people. He's got this mailroom of interns that are all studying from him, and he wants them to go off and continue to grow the culture of Mezcal, grow the business of Mezcal. Um, That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and then the other part of it is, because it's not, for him, just a project of distilling stuff, uh, he has a team of guys that are taking care of cows. He's got a team of guys that are taking care of goats. All these guys are doing different things with the idea being if you're taking care of the land, if you're taking care of the animals, you're going to end up with a better quality agave. And if you have, you know, any chef will tell you, like, if I have good ingredients, just get out of the way. Like, let the carrots speak for themselves. Yeah. Um, and so his project, he's, he's certainly involved in the distillation, but it's one of these things where, with anything, when you've mastered something, you kind of take a step back and go, well, I'm not going to get better by spending more time standing in front of the oven. I'm going to go figure out how to get a better version of the thing that goes into the oven. Wow. So this Tobaciche is awesome, but Stephanie just came around with the third mark. Tobala. Wow. So the queen, the queen of all the agaves here. I really like that Tobaciche there. I love the earthiness of it. It's so great. Like you're saying, like that... Earthiness kind of, it lingers through the whole palate, not just in the middle. It is, it's like that deep, dark earth right in your mouth. Thank you. Delicious. It's beautiful, yeah. So now we have the Tobala. So this is a little, tiny, beautiful. The Tobala, a lot of people think, like I was saying, is it's the queen of agaves because it's this, it often is kind of, it looks like, uh, a fractal like a, or something. Like a rosette. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just this, this perfect, beautiful, tiny agave, though. Like, a full-grown tobala might only like be... A about volleyball as, or yeah, something. Yeah, not as big as a basketball. Something very, very small. So they're extremely rare. And they also, as my understanding, the tobala, they only grow in the shade of Mexican oak. Uh, so. Yes. It depends, on, it depends on the tobala. So one of the other things that I think is really cool about Lalo... Uh, is he's constantly experimenting on stuff. And so he is a guy who brings both just the lifetime of tradition as well as this more sort of uh, academic, like, critical thinking 
aspect to, to the way that he produces. When I talk to other people about his theories and say, well, I got a guy that I work with in Minas, and uh, he says he thinks maybe it works like this. He's doing some experiments, and they all just, like, crack up laughing. Like, nobody does experiments. You do it the way that your dad did it, and he did it that way because that's how somebody did it before him. Um, and so uh, Lalo makes Tobolachino, which grows in the sun, and then he makes uh, Tobola Orajon, which means, like, ear, um, and that grows in the shade. And so most of what you see um, is Tobola Orajon. That's what nearly everybody everywhere is, is working with, um, but there is another species that prefers to grow just direct sunlight um, that he works with as well. Has he been experimenting with trying to get some of those other varietals to grow in rows? The way the espadine, you can cultivate and grow it in a row, and right. in six or seven years, you'll have what looks like an agave farm where plants are growing in a row, and you can harvest them, and then you know that I planted all these in the same year. They're all the same age. They're all going to be mature at the same time. It's very organized, but when a lot of times for something like the Tobolot, they're wild-crafted. You can't grow them in a nursery, or you can maybe get a start going in a nursery, yeah. but they won't grow out in the wild in rows or anything like that. So when you have to, when you go hunting for them, you might see one over here and go and harvest it and then have to like break out the binoculars and look across the landscape and hopefully see another one. They can be really few and far between. Yeah, I think uh, certainly in the past uh, there were a lot more truly wild agaves just because it didn't, nobody was selling enough mezcal that it merited um, going off and tending to these things or, or for plants like Tobala that prefer to grow on a hillside, they like poor drainage the way that lots of wine grapes like. Um, nobody's going to do the work of climbing up a hill and planting things on the side of the hill. You're going to just plant the stuff that grows in rows neatly alongside your corn and your beans and whatever grows on a hill, it happens to grow there and when it's ready, you'll harvest it and you're not going to get involved in it. Uh, but certainly as those agaves become more and more rare, and certainly as guys are able to sell it for more and more money, uh, you find that there aren't really very many truly wild agaves. Mostly what those are are things that somebody planted somewhere or they found it somewhere and they sort of tend to it. They, they check up on it every once in a while, try to protect it. If it's in a, a place where it's growing too densely with other plants, they might pick it up and move it somewhere else. Uh, and so these are things that are not growing in a field like you're, you're describing, but... Um, you know, they're not uh, waiting to be discovered. These guys know exactly where they are. Um, and and what I, my understanding is, is that the demand for mezcal has been growing. People have been doing a little more eight non-ancestral processes where they, they start up a nursery and they get a bunch of starts going. And then they, they're trying to, on their own piece of land, grow them in a more like farm-like manner yeah. and even watering them which in the past ancestral they would have never watered the agaves it just it would just let the agaves do as they do but now they're, they're trying to speed up the maturity so they're trying to kind of like get those growth seasons to shorten up so they can get the maturity to come more quickly yeah the uh one of the things that we're we're definitely most proud of and most involved in um so the, the name of our other brand, uh, if you guys were here for the punch, uh, Mal Bien, Bad Good. Uh, the idea behind that being, um, I'm certainly a drinker, as I, I guess you guys are as well. You know, when you spend a lot of time in rural Mexico, you see what people are getting paid, you see how people are living, uh, and you see exactly how much work goes into producing each bottle of mezcal. And the idea for us was... Uh, 
cut out all the middlemen. I don't have any affection for, for those guys. Uh, and find a way to bring everybody here products that might be way more expensive with another brand for a little bit less. And in the same time, uh, pay the guys that are doing the work a lot more than uh, somebody else might be getting them. So uh, in addition to just trying to pay you know, what we think is a more than fair price for the products, we're pretty involved in building greenhouses and water reclamation projects, all sorts of stuff uh, that traditionally you wouldn't have just because you wouldn't have the resources for it. But obviously, you know, there's a, a charitable element to it. And then just selfishly, if there's more agave, there's more mezcal, and we're all going to get to enjoy and that. You- been down to Oaxaca, there's not a lot of infrastructure. A lot of places, they don't have paved roads. They don't have Nothing. telephone poles with power. There's not, you know, uh, a sewer system. A lot of these places are extremely, you know, very, very living the same way that they've lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. And it makes you wonder because, you know, it is Mexico now, I mean, is a pretty developed country. So why are there still parts of Mexico that are so completely not taken care of by the government? It's such an interesting thing to visit if you're at all um, into traveling to see another place that's not just foreign in terms of I need a passport to get here, but you go, this isn't another country. This is another century entirely. Like, and then at the same time, there's a feeling of like, well, yeah, but you know, these guys aren't super excited that they don't have shoes on. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting to see, but it's also like very quickly... Uh, upsetting and and so you know there's a feeling of like well if the thing that you love is that people do things really traditionally here if they all had a lot of money would they continue to do things in the same way maybe maybe not Uh, you know depending on what people are willing to pay you for your work like you might do things the hard way or you might cut corners but the other side of that is is also pretty clear which is that uh People aren't going to stay there doing this work, making these products, just because it's, it's cool for me. Uh, they're doing it because they don't have another option. And as soon as they have a better option, they move to Mexico City, they move to Juarez, uh, they move to the United States, they move wherever they go to go find work. Um, you know, the idea of living up to tradition is really like a luxury that we can all enjoy because you like the idea of like a handmade pair of leather shoes or something. But if you're the guy who's in the shoe business, you're like, fucking give me a factory, you know? Like, yeah. Um, unless you're really going to pay me, like, Italian leather prices for this mezcal, it's not happening. So what do you guys think of this Tobala? Did you guys get a chance to taste it? What, what, what did it taste like to you? Floral. Okay. Sweet and floral. What do you guys get on the Tobala? Clay and what? Oh, nice. All right. All right. What was that? I missed that. Green oak. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, for me, Tobala across the board, whether it's Lalo's or somebody else's, it's it's always something that I like more for the texture than necessarily for the flavor. The flavors can vary depending on where it's from or who made it. Um, But it always has that really, like, rich, plush, velvety... Silky, full body. Wow, uh, this is magical mezcal to me. It's like really, really exquisite. It's so complex. It's get like, yeah, I get like a roasted bell pepper in here, and Mm -hmm. it's also very fruity. I get like some plum. Are you chocolate? I'm still on the Tobolo. I'm not rushing. Stephanie, I don't know why. Pump the brakes, baby. I'm trying to enjoy my mezcal. All right. Okay. All right. 
If you guys go on uh, Instagram, because I'm not a guy that would do a, a PowerPoint presentation. Um, well, we don't do that here anyway. It's not that kind of a party. No. No. Boy band? I don't think so. We are a boy band, but we're, we're singing the song of Mezcal. <laughs> you are a, you're a poet. You're the poetic I, I, I try. I, it, yeah. it could be the Mezcal that's doing it. The, uh, if you guys go on... Uh, at Mezcal Malbien, I posted a few different uh, series of photos to, to illustrate some of the stuff that we were talking about just now. Um, you can see photos of Lalo working and, and a variety of things. And I think there's uh, uh, two photos of different tobalas. So uh, the Chino grows in the sunlight, the Orajon grows in the shade. Um, the physical difference aside from where you would find them or where they, where they grow best, uh, the Chino has almost like a, uh, it looks like something from like Dungeons and Dragons. It's got this like real curly Q set of thorns that go up the side of the pencas, which are like the, the spear type leaves. Um, and then even the thorn itself, when you get into, you know, the part that almost looks like a claw or a fingernail, like super, super wiggly. Uh, and the leaves themselves go more vertical, whereas uh, the more traditional tobala that you find in the shade, they kind of fan out, they spread out, and they have they look like a rose. They're they're kind of like uh, cupping themselves. And interestingly, I actually saw a video that the, the university, a university in Mexico City, had done, and like they've got some botanical garden where they yeah. they do like stop action. Uh, they had the stop action video of like day to night kind of day to yeah. night and showing how like these agaves will actually move. They like open up and then close very, very, very slowly over the course of the day. It's really, really interesting that they're very much alive. They have like, they have a flex to them during the course yeah, of the day. Yeah, as ancient as the uh, the process that people are using to make the stuff is, you look at the plants themselves and they're like prehistoric. You, it's it's, this it's is an amazing from, beast from the you know the land before time. Th this gentleman over here is taking notes, and uh, you guys should all take after him because. <laughs> We should all be taking notes. Uh, so, so one of the other things that you find uh, the more that you kick around Mexico, it, it's super frustrating if you come from the world of whiskey or wine or something where there's a million books. You know, if you said you wanted to learn about whiskey, he could point you to five books where you go, you're not going to know everything, but if you read this, you've got a pretty good grasp on what's going on, what people are talking about. Uh, and there's nothing like that for mezcal. Um, part of why it is such a diverse category is that all these little villages... There's mountains in between them, and when you walk across a mountain and there's nothing there that you don't have in your town, you're like, well, I'm not going back there again. Like, well, you know, there's, there's no reason. Uh, and so all these different communities are really, they're making mezcal for their neighbors, and everybody has their own subjective uh, sense of uh, what something should taste like. And at the same time, they all have their own slang for what something should taste like. Like, we, in Opa. 2018... There are still parts of this country where people are calling soda pop. Like, that's, that's terrible. That's a stupid name for soda. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going out on a limb. That's what we say that on the West Coast. You You're from the East that. Coast. That's like a Southern thing, right? We, we say pop. You say pop? I think so. <laughs> no? No, we don't? I but, don't know. But even so, you know, we can, we can bridge this divide. We can. Uh, we can. That's what we're here for. People who are living, you know, hundreds of miles apart, and until very recently, we're speaking totally different languages from one another. Uh, the state of Oaxaca is about the same size as the state of uh, Indiana, 
And I think going into the beginning of the 20th century, there was more than 100 languages being spoken in there. And that's like, that's pretty, pretty like cut off from your neighbors kind of a deal. Um, and when you keep all of that in mind, you're like, well, of course, they're all going to have different names for the same plants. Uh, and then sometimes they're going to use the same name to talk about different plants. Um, and beyond all of that, botanists have not really done a lot of thorough, conclusive study on the plants. And what's more, the plants are kind of slutty. They're, they're like, like dogs, like you get a lot of mutts. Um, and so when you're thinking about, well, is this the same plant? Is it a different species? Uh, or is it the same species that grew differently because it grew in a different place? Obviously, like, um, you know, with people, with anything, if, uh, if it grows up in a different environment, it's going to take on different physical characteristics. So was that all the La Locuro right there? We, did, was... we did the Espadine tobasiche combination. We did the tobasiche 100%, and then we just had the Tobala 100%. Now, if I was going to buy these at my local liquor store, are they available right now? Like, how, uh, how rare are these? All of those are available in California. We just launched in Illinois. Um, so just California and Illinois. Just, you guys are super, super special because California. <laughs> Californians don't need to be told they're special. Yeah, they, they like it, though. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. But they don't, we don't need to tell them. But. Uh, yes. So... This is, uh, you know, certainly a labor of love on the, the part of myself and uh, my partner who's not here tonight. Um, Lalo is a guy who was super committed to tradition. And from the first time that I got to his house, he told me, there's no way I'll ever export this. This is just for the people. And I was like, fuck, man, that's a, that's a shitty thing for me to hear, but that's a cool thing to say. But, uh, but he came around eventually? He came around. And, and this is, we, we drank for about 14 hours straight. Wow. And at the end of it, he was like, you're all right, man. And, uh, and I was like, you see that, Dad? That's a beautiful thing. So that is another reason to really respect this Mezcal, too, is because traditionally it's only been made for the communities around where it's actually made. And so we are taking away a village's Mezcal here. Yes. Right? I mean, what's, what's the yield that you guys are going to be able to put out? What is Lalo Kuro able to put out this year in he terms of your release? He is doing a little over uh, 12,000 liters, I think, wow. going into in, in 2018, uh, which, again, you know, in the scheme of things, super, super minimal. Uh, as far as the little village that he lives in with 1,500 people, pretty good. Uh, as far as, you know, all of California or all of the United States, really minimal and then on top of that uh he's pretty set and i'm and i'm pretty set on supporting him in the idea that he wants uh only half of it to leave the town oh that's cool um, that's really cool. his feeling is is like what would be a worse crime than if the best mezcal anywhere is getting produced somewhere and nobody in the town knows what it tastes like and again back to his uh vision of of creating a really like sustainable, enduring future for mezcal and the mezcal that they're making in this town um, in the same way that if all of the people who can leave do leave, if nobody knows what it tastes like, they're not going to fall in love with it. And even if they did, you know, coming to this as a, as a grown person, it's pretty tough to have the same, uh, like, sensory connection to it as somebody who's been at parties where this was getting served from the time that they're a little kid whose mother was rubbing it on their gums when they were a baby and so on and so on. So... Uh, he, he's pretty committed to making sure that this is a thing that stays in the community as well as basically sharing the scraps with us. And what's the name of the village where this is made? This is in a place called Santa Catarina Minas, uh, which is about 45 minutes uh, 
south of Oaxaca Central. And the Minas means it's, there's mines there. There's mines old, there, old yeah. silver mines there? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so maybe that has something to do with the minerality of the soil? Is it that it's, it's rich enough to, you know, they have silver mines there, but... I'm not a geologist, but I like that theory. All right. I'm yeah. theorizing. I'm, I'm, I'm going what's, the family, what's Lalo's family's name? Uh, so, so Lalo is short for Eduardo in the same way that, like, Dick is short for Richard, which is to say, like, I don't know why people in Mexico call Eduardo Lalo. Um, but that's a common thing. And, uh, and his last name is Angeles. So... And that's the Angeles family is the same family that brought us Real Monero exactly. for years and years yeah. now. Uh, his father, Don Lorenzo, was the master mescalero. The, yeah, yeah, super OG mescalero. First guy to really like have a brand of mezcal in the way that, uh, you know, you think of all sorts of craft stuff that people have here. Like there aren't carpenters that have their own brand. You just go like you're a dude who puts up the framing on houses. But at some point crosses the line into artwork and then you have somebody who's like a an acclaimed furniture builder or whatever and so uh his dad was the first guy to say no the stuff that i'm making is better than my neighbors and i'm gonna put my name on it i want to sign it i want to make sure everybody knows um and uh and and lalo's the guy who continues that nice so is that all we have for the the lalo crew are we now going to try some albion or how many uh, marks yeah, do we have we can do we can do stephanie some, uh what was that what's that so you're going to have to make a really tough decision, guys. You have to empty one of your glasses. Bambino's going to come around right now with the Malbien. And will you tell us? I'm still going to enjoy this fourth one here. Yeah. So, so uh, I was a bartender for a long time. Um, and in, you know, not going back too many years, I felt like uh, if you work in a good cocktail bar, you've got a good gin, you've got a good bourbon, you've got a good scotch, and uh, not that there was necessarily anything uh, not good about the mezcals that we were pouring, but to me, it always felt like the stuff that was in the well, the stuff that was going to cocktails was not quite on par with what we would be pouring uh, for another spirit. Um, and that was a combination of it just being too expensive. The stuff that was on that level was something that you'd have to make a $25 drink with, and that's not really what most people want. No. Um, or if it was more affordable, it was lower ABV, and, and so if you're thinking about cocktails, what tastes perfectly strong on its own in a glass, as soon as you start throwing sugar in there, you start throwing citrus in there, all these other things, uh, that proof is going to get cut drastically, and so you end up with a drink that, uh, if you don't have a higher ABV, is going to have a little bit less punch it's going to go, you know, if mezcal is the first ingredient that they list, I want that to be the, the star of the movie, not the cameo, you know? Um, and so when we were putting together everything to bring Lalo here, to bring a bunch of the smaller producers that we're going to have here starting next year, um, we knew that we also wanted to bring in something that would be uh, more of like a gateway mezcal entry level, uh, good for cocktails or just good, you can drink it on its own and not have to feel bad about spending 50 bucks every night when you get to your house. And so this is going to be an Espadine thing, yeah? So this is an Espadine that, uh, that she's pouring right now. Um, should be like 33, 35 bucks. And the rest there. of the line is around $100, right? Like uh, the Lalo, Lalo stuff is not cheap. retail? No. Uh, the Lalo stuff retail, um, I think, starts at like 130 like wow. 130 to 150 in there. But again, um, but that you know, means you guys are giving some fair wage down south. I hope. I hope you, that's what that if means. If you go to Lalo's house and you buy one bottle from him, 
you will be paying less than we are paying when we buy that same one bottle from him. It is the most fucked up deal. Lalo is screwing me. Uh, no, you don't look like you're hurting. You're all right. You're I'm all drinking. Right. Um, no, it, it's it's we we're we're in love with what he does, and more than making a pile of money on it, if we can make any money on it, and uh, you know help promote this thing that's special and and feels like an endangered species in some way, we're we're pretty excited about that. And if you can make that endangered species more sustainable, that would be a wonderful thing as well. That's that's when we really clean up and get paid. Yeah, that's and, a, it's and a, it's just a spread the time. knowledge about the the people of, of Oaxaca and Oaxaca itself is amazing. It's really yeah, amazing. So where is this made? Uh, so the stuff that we're pouring right now, Bambino. Thank you. Is from uh, Ocotepec, which is about say uh, in a car forty minutes east of Minas, um, kind of halfway between Minas and uh, Santiago Maratlan, which if you've ever been to Oaxaca, you definitely pass through there. That's where a lot of the like bigger distilleries are. Um, and these guys, it's a, it's a region that was famous for being where all of the pot was grown in Mexico. Uh, and Marijuana. Then, yeah, that's the one. Um, and then, obviously, as we as we started growing good pot here, that kind of, like, fucked up their business. Uh, so you got more and more guys going, like, well, this field that used to grow, like, shitty pot now grows good agave. Um, and to the benefit of the guys who have been making mezcal there for 100 years, 200 years, whatever it is, uh, now all of a sudden you have all of this land that's seeded with agave and, and providing them with material to work with. Really a beautiful mezcal. Thank you. Is, is this all that Malbian has right now? You guys are going to have new releases right soon? Right now, that's all. That's the only stuff under the Malbian label. Uh, going forward, in our bodega in Oaxaca, we've got a couple thousand liters uh, in, like, basically 200-liter increments of Tapastate, Aracano, Montecuiche, all sorts of different stuff coming from guys that are making really small production, like 2,000 liters a year. Um, and that is stuff that they don't want to start their own brand it's tougher for us to market 30 brands and so to you know kind of follow in the footsteps of some other guys in the mezcal world we would rather uh kind of bring that all under one umbrella give everybody credit on the back label and then uh introduce it when it's sold out it's sold out and next month we'll have something else and if you're into that you know really wait till next year and we'll have it again well thank you ben does anyone have any more questions for ben from Malbien, La Locuro. Well, Ben, thank you so much. It's a great education, and this is amazing mezcal. Thank you so coming So tell out. your friends Cheers. about the La Locuro, for sure. It's a wonderful, wonderful juice. <laughs> Cheers. Appreciate it. you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. Remember.